What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're tuned in to the Todd Coconado Show, otherwise known as The Remnant, one of the most listened to podcasts in the Christian community. You can visit our website, ToddCoconado.com. And now broadcasting live around the world from Music City, USA, Nashville, Tennessee, here's the host of the show, Pastor Todd Coconado. Well, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's broadcast. Hope you're having a wonderful Christmas season, holiday season. And Happy New Year. Wow, we made it. We made it through another year. No matter what you've been through this year, you're still here. You got to say that. You're still here. So I'm glad that you're here. And we're going to answer a question tonight that somebody asked me. Actually, people have been asking me this for many years, but it was brought up again. And I thought this is an important discussion. We need to have this discussion on the radio show. And it's the question, is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? Well, the question of whether Jesus is God is a theological one that has been a topic of discussion and debate for Christians for centuries, literally. And different Christian denominations and theological perspectives have varying interpretations on how to answer this question. So I'm going to give you my perspective, and we're going to get into this in depth, and then we're going to go, um, we're going to contrast between what's called apostolic Oneness Pentecostal versus Trinitarian, two different explanations of this answer. And uh, that way you can kind of see a little bit more of this discussion from a theological standpoint. You can have understanding of it because a lot of Christians don't even know this, this discussion is even a discussion. They just think, well, yeah, Jesus is the son of God. I know that he sits at the right hand of the father. I know that he was begotten. How, how did this all happen? So the reason why we're having this discussion, you know, we, we just celebrated Christmas. We're celebrating Christmas. And, of course, the, the whole story of Christmas is the birth of Jesus, the birth of Messiah. He is the Messiah, Yeshua, Messiah. But he was birthed. He was, he was, so in our, in our human finite perspective, in our brains, you know, if you don't really get into the theological discussion of this and you just maybe were a good Catholic boy or a good, you know, you, you raised in the church, you're Pentecostal, you're, you're Protestant, whatever you are. And, and you've never really thought about having this discussion. You just assume, well, you know, Jesus died on a cross. Uh, we know that the Virgin Mary had immaculate conception and the Holy Spirit, you know, basically uh, allowed her to be pregnant, not from a man, but from the Holy Spirit. She became pregnant. She conceived and she, were to, she was to birth the son of God, Jesus, who was the uh, eternal sacrificial lamb, died on a cross, rose again, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's probably what a lot of Christians think. And, and they wouldn't be wrong 
in those details, but there's a lot more to this story. And this is why we're having this discussion because I want you to be set up for success when you have this discussion. I want, I want your brain to be uh, provoked. I want, you to be, I want you to have some, some thought tonight or today or this morning, whenever you're listening, in this, to, to have some, some type of uh, a deeper way to explain this. And not only for other people, but for yourself. Because the only way to the Father is through the Son. We know that. And who is Jesus? Who, who is it that he says he is? Well, let's continue here. Jesus is both fully divine and fully human, fully man, fully God. He's considered one of the persons of the one God or the Godhead. Key passages in the Bible that are often cited in support of Jesus' divinity include John 1, 1 through 14. Let's read this. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God, to whom those believe in his name, who were born not by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we behold his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This passage is significant in Christian theology because it highlights the divine nature of Jesus Christ, referring to him as the word, Logos, who was with God in the beginning and who is also God himself. It speaks of Jesus as the center of all things and emphasizes his role as the source of life and light. This passage also mentions John the Baptist and how Jesus, the word, became flesh and dwelt among humanity, revealing God's glory and grace and truth. It lays the foundation for the understanding of Jesus as the incarnate son of God in our doctrine. It's a well-known passage from the New Testament of the Bible that comes from the Gospel of John. We just read it. It's often referred to as the prologue to John. And, and it contains important theological statements about Jesus Christ. Now, this is very important for you to understand because it's a little bit confusing. As I said, different Christian denominations and theological perspectives have varying interpretations on how to answer this question. Here's the key passages. Again, John 1, 1 through 14. We just read that. This passage speaks of the word, which is Jesus, being with God and being God, and that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is both the word, logos in the Greek, and God. Now, John 10.30, John 10.30, Jesus says this. He says, I and the Father are one. Again, John 10.30, I and the Father are one, which we interpret as a statement of his divinity. Again, one God, not separate gods, not different gods, part of the triune God. Colossians 2.9, Colossians 2.9. 
For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Hmm. Let, let's dive into that. Let's explain Colossians 2.9. So Colossians 2.9, which is from the book of Colossians, obviously, written by the Apostle Paul. And Paul is addressing the believers of Colossians and emphasizing the centrality of the significance of Jesus Christ. Here's the verse from the New King James. It says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, this verse contains several key theological points. We're going to break those down right now. Number one, in him, that's Jesus Christ. The verse begins by pointing to Jesus Christ, emphasizing that everything it speaks is found in him. This highlights the centrality of Jesus in our faith and our theology. Number two, the word dwells. The word dwells indicates that something resides or exists in Jesus Christ. In this case, what resides in him is of the utmost importance, okay? Number three, all the fullness, all the fullness. The phrase all the fullness refers to the totality and the completeness of something. In this context, it speaks of the fullness of divinity or the Godhead, the fullness And now let's talk about of the Godhead. The Godhead refers to the divine nature of the Trinity. In other words, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. It encompasses the entirety of God's divine essence. So when Colossians 2.9 says, For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, bodily, yes, it is making a profound theological declaration about Jesus Christ. It affirms that Jesus is not merely a human being or, you know, a, a great teacher or a prophet, as some may say, but he, he possesses the complete divine nature of God. This is in the Greek and the Hebrew. Very important that you understand this. It affirms that Jesus is not merely a human being or a great teacher or a prophet, but that he possesses the complete divine nature of God. He is Messiah. He is Jesus. He is God. The fullness of God's divinity resides in Jesus Christ bodily, meaning that Jesus is God incarnate, fully God, fully man, fully divine while also having a physical human body. This verse underscores the uniqueness and deity of Jesus Christ, emphasizing his divine nature and his central role in the Christian faith as the Son of God and the Savior of humanity. So in summary, Colossians 2.9 highlights the profound belief in the divinity of Jesus Christ, stating that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. It is a foundational verse in our theology that underscores the unique and central role of Jesus in the understanding of God's nature and, his, and, and in our salvation. It's important that we understand that. Now, this is what I want to contrast here, okay? There are different beliefs in the Christian community just like about women preachers, just about pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. But this one is really kind of a bigger deal to me because this one is is actually a defining aspect of the faith to understand the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? We've heard that in the scripture, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But let's look into the Trinitarian view and then the oneness Pentecostal, better known as apostolic views, to better understand their theological differences. So the Trinitarian view, this is the view that I subscribe to, by the way, is that there's one God in three persons. The Trinitarianism, uh, Trinitarianism is rooted in the belief that there's one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, the God the Father, 
God the Son, who's Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons are co-equal, co-eternal, and share the same divine essence. They are one, though, because here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So distinct roles and functions. Trinitarians see three persons, the three persons of the Trinity, as having distinct roles and functions in their work of salvation and in their relationship with humanity. For example, the Father is often associated with creation, authority, and sending the Son. While the Son is seen as the one who became incarnate, suffered and died for humanity's redemption, and rose again. The Holy Spirit is regarded as the one who empowers and guides us as believers. The Comforter, Counselor, uh, the one who fills us. The Holy Spirit lives in our body. Think about it. The, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the argument of Trinitarians from a biblical standpoint is that our belief is rooted in the Bible, citing passages that highlight the distinctiveness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as well as passages where all three are mentioned together. Uh, example, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. The historical acceptance of this is also critical. We have to understand this has been the belief for a long time. The Trinitarian view has been widely accepted and articulated in creeds and statements of faith throughout our history including the Nicene Creed and the, um, the Athanasian Creed. And uh, it is a prevailing view in most Christian denominations. So uh, most of us that are listening to this broadcast subscribe to the Trinitarian view from a theological standpoint. Now, let me get into the oneness Pentecostal view. And you may be oneness Pentecostal, and I'm not against you. Actually, I have some great friends that are oneness Pentecostal. And I think they're great people. Apostolic people are awesome people. Many of you are dear friends of mine, like I said. So here's the difference, the distinction. The, the oneness Pentecostal view is absolute oneness of God. Oneness Pentecostalism emphasizes the absolute oneness of God, which means there's only one divine person in the Godhead. They reject their traditional Trinitarian understanding and do not see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as distinct persons. Um, the, the modes or manifestations, oneness Pentecostals believe that God reveals himself to humanity in different modes or manifestations. They view the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as roles or titles that God takes on at different times rather than distinct persons. Emphasis on the name of Jesus. Oneness Pentecostals place a strong emphasis on the name of Jesus, asserting that salvation is obtained exclusively through faith in Jesus Christ, which, by the way, I believe that because there's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Son. They often baptize in the name of Jesus only in opposed to the Trinitarian formula of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And from a historic standpoint, oneness Pentecostalism emerged as a distinct theological movement within Pentecostalism in the early 20th century, and it gained prominence as a reaction against what they perceived as deviations from biblical monotheism. So the key difference between the two views lies in their understanding of the nature of God. Trinitarians believe in the coexistence of three distinct persons within the Godhead, one Godhead, by the way, while oneness Pentecostals reject the notion of distinct persons and emphasize the oneness of God with different modes of manifestation. These theological distinctions have led to separate denominations and theological traditions, which Christianity um, has argued over these for a while now and each has its own doctrinal convictions and practices. So, the question is, are they brethren? Are, are, are oneness Pentecostals and, and regular Pentecostals brethren? In other words, Trinitarians versus 
um, you know, the view that I just mentioned, the apostolic view, oneness Pentecostal view. So the, the challenge is oneness Pentecostals, for the most part, feel that they are the ones that are right and Trinitarians are wrong. They actually look at Trinitarianism as a false teaching and a false doctrine made by man. So I can kind of understand that in the, in the term of we're trying to explain God in three persons. We're trying to explain a triune God. But, but, the, but the, the main reason why we believe this is because the Great Commission tells us, go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Plus, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. How do you explain that? So there's a, there's a, a Godhead, the Trinitarian view, as I just explained, which kind of explains that, where it's, it's distinct persons, but one God, a triune God, one God. And we believe that God is, in fact, one. There's not three different gods. There's definitely not three different gods. I want you to understand that. So it's just really a matter of interpretation here. But unfortunately, it's caused quite a bit of division because, uh, unfortunately, uh, people like to argue. <laughs> and people say, well, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. And then everybody gets in these crazy arguments. And so let's, let's continue to talk about this. So Colossians 2.9, Colossians 2.9, for I in him, Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Okay, we just read that. Now, Philippians 2.6 describes Jesus as being in the form of God. Let's let's break down Philippians 2.6 a little bit more, okay? So Philippians 2.6, I'm reading from the New King James. This is part of a passage often refers to, referred to as Christ him or, or kenosis him. And it contains important theological insights about the nature and humility of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, again, I'm going to read it. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, but be equal with God. Philippians 2, 6 from the New King James. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, this verse can be broken down into several key theological points, and we're going we're gonna to discuss these, okay? So number one, who being in the form of God, who being in the form of God, it's the first part of the verse. This phrase emphasizes the preexistence and divine nature of Jesus Christ. It means that before his incarnation, Jesus existed in the very form and essence of who? God. In other words, he is God. Now, number two, do not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Do not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This is part of the verse that's somewhat complex, okay? It suggests that Jesus, despite being fully divine and equal to God, the Father, in essence, did not cling to his divine privileges or status. Instead, he willingly took on a different role and form. And this is why the Trinitarian view, this is really where that comes out of. Because it's not, it's not the apostolic view here. If you think about it, I'm going to say it again. It, it suggests that Jesus, despite being fully divine and equal to God, and God, in essence... He did not cling to his divine privileges or status. Instead, he willingly took on a different role and form. How do you explain that in the oneness Pentecostal? I don't know. Somebody might be able to do that. The theological significance of Philippians 2.6 lies in its portrayal of the humility and self-emptying, which is the kenosis, of Jesus Christ. The verse sets the stage for what follows in the passage, Philippians 2, 7 through 11, where it describes how Jesus, though equal with God, humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant 
and becoming obedient even to the point of death on the cross. So Philippians 2.6 highlights the divinity of Christ, Jesus, while also introducing the concept of his humility and self-sacrifice. It teaches that Jesus, although fully God, willingly chose to humble himself for the sake of humanity's salvation, a central theme in our theology as a Christian. This passage is profound because it's a reflection on the nature of Christ and his redemptive work. Wow, that's, that's some deep stuff right there. So let's go back. Yes, Jesus is God. He was fully man and yet fully God. In the Greek, the word logos or logos has a various, um, has various meanings and it can be translated in several different ways depending on the context. But the most common translation and meanings of logos include word. Jesus is the word. So one of the most well-known translations of logos is word. This often used in theological context, especially in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is referred to as the word. John 1, 1 through 14, emphasizing his divine nature and role in creation. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh. Jesus is the word. Now, I want to talk about one more scripture verse here, and that's found in Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 15. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 15. And this, this verse, this, this, this is part of uh, a scripture set, which is known as the Shema, S-H-E-M-A. And it, this is the central declaration of the Jewish faith, by the way, emphasizing the monotheistic nature of God. He is one. The Lord our God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's one, one God. So let's explain that. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, which is this foundational verse in Judaism, is also a central tenet of monotheism in both Judaism and Christianity. So from a Trinitarian perspective within Christianity, here's how we understand the verse, okay? Number one, monotheism is affirmed. Trinitarian Christians fully affirm the monotheistic declaration of the Shema, which emphasizes the oneness of God. They believe, I believe, you believe, most likely, as do Jews, that there is only one God. There's not two gods, there's not five gods, there's not multiple gods, there's one. And this belief is central to our faith. Okay, so even though we believe in a triune God, a God in three persons, that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now, here's the complex unity. Trinitarians interpret the oneness of God as a complex unity. While the Shema declares the oneness of God, Trinitarians believe that God's unity is expressed in a way that involves three distinct persons, which is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the doctrine of the Trinity, which, you know, in other words, Trinitarian Christians believe in this doctrine of the Trinity, which asserts that within the one God, there are also three co-equal and co-eternal persons who share the same divine essence, and these three persons exist in a perfect and external relationship with one another. God the Father, the Father is seen as the first person of the Trinity, the creator and the source of all things. God the Son, the Son is seen as the second person of the Trinity who became incarnate, took on human form, and is the savior of humanity, the eternal sacrificial lamb. And then you have God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is seen as the third person of the Trinity who empowers and guides us as believers and who came in the new covenant in Acts chapter two. Doesn't mean the Holy Spirit didn't exist in the Old Testament because he did. So the unity in diversity in Trinitarian belief is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, 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 a, is a unity of purpose 
essence, and will. And even though they're distinct persons, they are one. They are understood as working in perfect harmony and unity to accomplish the divine plan of salvation. So from a Trinitarian perspective, Deuteronomy 6.4 affirms the oneness of God, but it is seen as a consistent with the complex unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as expressed in the doctrine of the Trinity. And Trinitarians believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God while maintaining their distinct roles and relationships within the Godhead. And this theological understanding is central to mainstream Christianity. Okay? Now, let me explain that same verse from the perspective of a oneness Pentecostal person. So from the perspective of a oneness Pentecostal person, the verse, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, is interpreted to affirm the absolute oneness of God. And so here's how they would, they would look at this. The emphasis of God's oneness, oneness Pentecostals emphasize the declaration that there is only one God. And this view, uh, this verse is, is as clear to them as an uncompromising statement of God's singularity and unity. They reject the twin, Trinity because one is Pentecostals reject the traditional doctrine of the Trinity, which teaches that God exists as three distinct persons. And they argue such a belief is inconsistent with the affirmation of God's oneness found in the Shema. Now, uh, oneness theology, uh, instead of the Trinitarian view, oneness Pentecostals adhere to the theological perspective often referred to as oneness or modalism. And in this view, they believe that God manifests himself in a different, in different modes or roles rather than distinct persons. In other words, they see God as a singular divine person who reveals himself in various ways. Father, they believe that God manifested himself as the father in the Old Testament, particularly in the roles related to creation, guidance, and authority. Son, they believe that God manifested himself as the son, Jesus Christ, during the incarnation, taking on human form to accomplish salvation. They do not see Jesus as a separate person from God, but as God in human flesh. And Holy Spirit, they believe that God manifests himself as the Holy Spirit who empowers and guides believers in Christian life. So let me just say this, okay? To me, it's really just a way of explaining it different. I believe Jesus is God. I believe the Holy Spirit is God. I believe they're one. I think it's really in the interpretation and explanation. Now, where I have a hard time, though, is when we get into, uh, you know, sits at the right hand of the Father. How do you explain that? This is where it gets a little weird. Oneness Pentecostals have a unique theological interpretation of passages in the Bible where Jesus is described as sitting at the right hand of the Father, such as in Psalm 110.1 and Mark 16.19. Here's how they typically explain this concept within the framework of their oneness theology. It's a position of authority. Oneness Pentecostals believe that the phrase sitting at the right hand of the Father signifies a position of authority and honor rather than a description of a distinct person within the Godhead. They interpret it as a metaphorical expression indicating that Jesus has been exalted and given authority by God. One God in different manifestations. According to Oneness theology, they only... Uh, there is only one God who reveals himself in different modes or manifestations, and in this view, the Father, Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are not three separate persons, but rather different ways in which God interacts with humanity at different times. When it comes to incarnation and exaltation, uh, oneness Pentecostals explain that during the incarnation, God manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ while on earth. Jesus fulfilled his redemptive mission, including his death, burial, and resurrection. After his resurrection and ascension, he was exalted to a position of supreme authority and honor by God the Father. So they, they, they basically use the symbolic language. They view the language of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father as symbolic language used to convey the idea that Jesus exalted his status, uh, Jesus 
had exalted status and authority. It does not imply two separate divine persons in their understanding. So, wow. I mean, uh, you could probably hit your head against a wall on this stuff because it's both sides have pretty good arguments. And for the most part, in my view, and I used to talk to Dr. Hayford about this, they're really not that crazy different. It's just the way that people explain it. But unfortunately, Christians argue over this and get into these horrible feuds and certain sects of Christians, including a lot of apostolic people, think that they're the only they're the only right ones and that everybody else is wrong. And they even think that a lot of Trinitarians aren't saved. And I, I would not say that. I, I think that Trinitarians are saved. I, I happen to be a Trinitarian. Uh, as long as you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've accepted him with your heart, you believe in all you know in your heart, you've 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 confessed him with your mouth, you you you've repented of your sin and unrighteousness and you know the holy spirit comes and lives in you i think what what trinitarianism is is it's the best way that we can describe a god that is so incredible and holy and above our understanding in so many ways that we can't really explain as humans and so we're trying from a theological standpoint to best explain the godhead that we fully can't really comprehend but is jesus god in my view yes is there any other way to the Father except through Jesus? In my view, no. If, if somebody believes in Jesus and they believe Jesus is God and they've accepted him into their heart and they praise and worship Jesus, aren't they, are they on their way to heaven? I believe they are. But I, I think there's certain things that we're not going to understand until we're in heaven. And uh, these are major rifts in the church, and we're not going to fix them or heal them today but I just wanted you to understand because at some point as you grow, if, you, if you've been in Christ for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, or just one year, or not even a year, this question is going to come up. And I wanted you to understand the argument here. And so at least you can come from a, uh, an educated standpoint and then make your theological uh, decision, you know, wh- what you believe. And uh, I am not against anybody that's apostolic. If you listen to this show and you're a oneness Pentecostal person, like I said, I have dear friends, pastor friends. In fact, I'm even inclined to, I, I do believe in some aspects. I mean, I'm not disagreeing that Jesus is God. I just, I think it's a matter of, of explanation, trying to wrap our human brains around how God manifests. And he's so powerful and so mighty and so holy that I don't think we're, we're either of us, either oneness Pentecostals or uh, Trinitarians, I don't think either of us do our due diligence in fully explaining how God manifests. I think only God can fully understand that. And maybe when we're in heaven, you know, when, when we're ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ, we can ask him that, or we can maybe understand a little bit better. I'm sure the angels have a better understanding than we do. But the bottom line is, is have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And by the way, he says, come to me as a child. In other words, you don't have to be so complex. You don't have to know all these things. The main thing you need to do is accept Jesus in your heart as Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. Change your life. Change your ways. Have your mind renewed. You're a new creation. You can't go on living how you did in the world. You've made a distinct change in your life. You're, you can't go back to that old person ever again. And unfortunately, in our Christian faith, there are these theological debates and they probably won't get fixed or fully be understood until we are with Jesus. But the main thing is that you love the Lord, you get into his word, you know his word, you know God, you have a relationship with him. It's a personal relationship, a daily relationship. You, have, you spend time in the secret place. You love the word of God. For me and my spirit, 
it bears more witness to understand the Godhead as three and one. It's just, it's just another way of explaining it as far as I'm concerned. But I get the oneness Pentecostal view. I just, I just have a little bit of a hard time with some of the ways they explain certain things. And so I'm, I lean more towards Trinitarian, but I do understand the oneness Pentecostal view. And I probably could argue for both sides, just like I could argue for both sides on mid-trib, post-trib, and you know, all three sides there, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. I can argue for all those. I could, I could be a good lawyer. I could argue a case for all of them from a biblical standpoint. But you know what? One of these days, we're going to get raptured out of here. And maybe it's before the tribulation. Maybe it's during the tribulation. Or maybe it's after the tribulation. All I know is I want to go home to be with the Lord. And I want on that faithful day for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. So I'm going to serve him with all my heart. And I'm going to continue to grow. And I'm going to continue to seek his face. And I'm going to continue to ask his Holy Spirit for revelation and understanding of some of these things and these areas. But I'm not going to focus on the 2% or the 3% of where Christians disagree. I'm going to focus on the 98% of where we agree and I'm going to be about the work of the kingdom. Are you with me? Hallelujah. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we just thank you for today's broadcast. I hope this helps some folks. I hope it's not more confusing now, but Lord, we're always seeking to grow, to know you more, to know you and to make you known. And what we do know is that Jesus, you are God. You, you were raised from the dead. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. We love you. We praise you. You are holy. You are mighty. You are worthy of all praise. You are worthy of all glory. You are worthy of all honor. And I pray that everyone listening to this broadcast would be on fire for you in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's broadcast. I love having these little conversations. I hope you don't leave more confused than when you came on. But ultimately, like when I was in Bible college, they said there's certain things you're going to have to develop your own theology. You're going to have to ask the Lord, post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, women in ministry. Well, this is kind of one of those. But you know what? We love Jesus. That's the main thing. Are you going to go out there and make disciples of the nations? Please do that. That's the Great Commission. We love you. We bless you. PastorTodd.org. And we'll be back soon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.